With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Sabrina Halbertson. Good morning, and thank you for joining us this morning on the AgNet News Hour. Coming up later, the NRCS is seeking public comment on eight conservation practices. And the California Small Farm Conference is February 26th through March 1st, but before that, it's World Ag Expo Week. And we're featuring today one of the exhibits that you can see at the Expo with Verdant Robotics. We're going to have our 20-foot machine there, so they're going to get to see the latest and greatest in our equipment. That's Curtis Garner, the COO of Verdant Robotics. I'm so excited to be out there. I come from agriculture, so yeah, I I go almost every year. So yeah, the World Ag Expo is kind of like my old high school reunion. You can hear all about Verdant Robotics in today's interview segment coming up later in this show. In this week's Almond Matters, brought to you by Valent USA, bloom preparation is underway as growers contend with continued rainstorms. In today's Almond Matters segment, Todd Berkdahl joins us once again. He's a field market development specialist with Valent USA. And now, Todd, since we've had some pretty consistent rainfall with these storm systems coming through California, what are some of the issues that might be uh, top of mind here now that bloom is uh, quickly approaching? Well, if you've gotten rain, it's warmer, warmer storms that are coming through. One of the bigger issues is lack of chilling. We really haven't, we've kind of, kind of had a warm winter. So that warm winter is, you know, it's conducive to more pest pressure going into the season. We should we could still get more chilling, you know. It's, I mean, I've seen it freeze on April first, so you know we've got some time to go here. But right now, it looks like uh, we're still going to get more rain. Hopefully, we do. We need we need rain in California. We definitely need rain. Uh, as far as the pest pressure goes, uh, things are starting to bloom, uh, starting to pop. Bees have been moved into a lot of fields, and they're moving more in as as, as we talk. So. It's a little bit late to be putting out the dormant applications of insecticides because with the bees there, you know, and happy bees. So I would caution people with that. In fact, I got a call this morning. They asked me about putting my song because I delayed dormant applications from neighboring and one hadn't done sanitation and wanted to see if they could clean up or at least stifle the maybe uh, orange one potential. And I said, no, it's too late. We've got bees working that way in the bees. So, you know, there's a, there are blooms here and there. You know, it's not full bloom yet by any means, but it's, it's, it's happening. So with that said, uh, some guys are still putting out their herbicide applications. If they haven't, they need to get that out at ASAP, uh, pre-emergent down. Good time to do it in between these rains. You know, water is needed for incorporation. And then uh, there's several uh, several options to do or going into bloom here. You guys, there's some, I've had some calls about retain, using retain at bloom. Uh, the biggest thing with retain at bloom is you want to get it on before petal fall, usually around the 30, 40% bloom period for enhancing fruit set. There is an aerial label on it, and I would highly recommend an aerial label because the field's being wet right now. You can put on the helicopter, fix on the aircraft, and, and do a pretty good job. The uh, concentration is really key. And then uh, there's one other thing on this, Naval orange worm deal, you know, a lot of people got pounded by naval orange worm last year. And one of the things I noticed is driving around the last, probably the last three weeks, is a lot of orchards with a lot of money still on the trees. And for whatever reason, stick tights on the trees, those are potential harbors for naval orange worms. And, you know, that's why we guys would go in and do a dormant application with oil and something like, we used to have large band, now we don't have large band anymore. So something like Asana works you know, I would I would say it probably works as good as 
as Roy's saying, from what I've seen. But it's too late now to make that up those applications because of the blooms. And so then they're going to have to either go in there and knock them off, which is labor, or just fight the battle as, as the season proceeds. But that's something that, you know, would have, should have, could have. That's something that should have been done back in November, December, right after harvest, actually. And, I, you know, I did some work last year, actually the last couple of years, with DIPO. DIPO soft chemistry, Maxillus thuringiensis. It's uh, been around for 50 years plus. Uh, but it's still a potent tool for lepidopteran pests, which, of which navel orangeworm is. And the, the thing is uh, that I found is you've got to be out there about every seven to ten days with DIPO starting about three or four weeks before Pulse And we got pretty good results last year, you know, targeting this is just a dipel, dipel program. The only problem is you spray it, you got, you know, three or four sprays uh, compared to conventional other than heart, you know, regular chemistries like Altacor and such that you can spray on one time or a couple times and be done. But I know navel orange one's probably going to be a big problem this year just because of the winter we've had and the number of mummies I see out there on trees. So just to watch out. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. In today's National Spotlight, there's an easy way to figure out if that gallon of milk came from a nearby farm. David Geiger has this report from the Midwest. Local food can be a premium product. Many people like to know where their food comes from. Dairy is one type of food that is easy to get at the local grocery store. Mariah Busta with Midwest Dairy says it has a quick turnaround time. Here in the Midwest, most people live within about 100 miles of, di- of a dairy farm. So that means that milk is local, so it can be to the grocery store on shelves within 48 hours. And it's easy to find out if the food you're picking up is from a nearby plant. Dairy products have an identification code that is printed right on the packaging. And so what that code is, is it's a two-digit date code followed by a one- to five-digit processing plant code. So by typing that code in online, you can find exactly where that dairy product was processed. Busta says the first part of the code will always be two numbers between 01 and 56. Codes are normally printed near the top of the container or on lids. Sometimes they're printed right on the label. But because every package is different, she says if you go to whereismymilkfrom.com, there are examples and pictures to identify what the numbers on codes mean. That's where you can type in the code once you do find it. But they also have some examples and pictures to help you identify what all of those numbers on your code means. And then you can type in the right thing to find what your where your milk comes from. Again, you can find out if that milk or cheese in your fridge is from a local plant by going to whereismymilk.com. I'm David Geiger reporting. USDA's latest adjustment to soybean production in Brazil also meant changes regarding global and U.S. supply and demand estimates. Here's Rod Bain. Soybean production in Brazil, the primary newsmaker in USDA's February reports. Chief economist Seth Meyer says regarding production and its impact on bean balance sheets. It looks like last year's crop was a little bit bigger than we anticipated because as you look at exports and use, it becomes clear that maybe that crop was a little bit bigger than the prior estimate. But at the same time, in the current year's production, we continue to see some weather pressure and we actually lowered the crop in the current year. So we added 2 million metric tons in the back year. We took away a million metric tons in the front year. Yet even with lower global production forecasted from the previous month, a year-over-year rise in soybean production continued to increase both world beginning and ending stocks for the new marketing year. And more soybeans available in the world market meant a lower U.S. export forecast, contributing to a 10-cent adjustment down in the season-ending average price, now at $12.65 a bushel. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. 
And what did the Sunshine State provide in the way of new production data for this season's orange crop? And for new U.S. orange production forecasts, Rudd Bain joins us once again. Month-over-month month adjustments down, but a year-over-year year increase in U.S. orange production. That's the update from USDA and its February crop production report. Mark Hudson of the National Agricultural Statistics Service in Florida notes only his home state is reporting their crops this month. Other states only do it quarterly, we do it monthly. With other orange-producing states like California and Texas next reporting in April. As for the Sunshine State's production forecast for February... The only change we have is the non-Valencia oranges went from 7.5 million boxes to 6.8 million boxes, a decrease of 9% from the previous forecast, and previous year it's actually up 11% from last year, but it was a hurricane year last year, two hurricanes. Florida Valencia orange production remained unchanged from the previous forecast, but is up 35% from last season's final utilization. I'm Rod Bain reporting for... The the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. That's today's National Spotlight. Now here's Will Jordan with the Livestock Report. In today's Livestock News, lower cattle numbers that lead to higher prices for beef producers also has implications for dairy farms. USDA recently reported the U.S. cattle herd reached its lowest level since 1951. Brian Doherty of Total Farm Marketing explains what this means for dairy farmers. In theory, if you look at the dairy industry and see that the shift over the last several years has been to more dairy beef production, yes, that's good for dairy producers. But does it take cows out of the production cycle to, to get that kind of reduced herd to push prices higher? That's the million-dollar question. And so you're still dealing with an industry that continues to consolidate. You see smaller farmers moving more to the wayside. That's just the nature of it right now. To get milk prices to head higher, Doherty says one of two things needs to happen. We need demand to cycle in in a bigger way than it has been, or, or the market has to actually see or at least perceive that the cow numbers are taking an appreciable drop. And I'm not talking ten or 20,000 cows from report to report. I'm talking an appreciable drop of 1% or 2%. That we haven't seen on the cow side. Doherty says dairy producers are facing significant headwinds. The headwinds they're facing, again, the dollar, China economy, consumer debt here at home. Less than 40% of Americans have $1,000 on hand or in the bank. Things are kind of tight. There's just not a lot of extra money to chase a lot of high-priced food value. Food inflation is still here, unfortunately. In other livestock news, the National Agricultural Statistics Service released their sheep inventory report recently. The 2024 Sheep and Goat Report from the U.S. Department of Agriculture's National Agricultural Statistics Service showed a 2% decline in several key areas, including total sheep population, lamb crop, and wool production. The report was released on January 31st. The entire sheep and lamb inventory in the United States totaled 5.03 million head on January 1. Breeding sheep inventory stood at 3.6 million head. The 2023 lamb crop was 3.03 million head, and the lambing rate was 103 lambs per 100 ewes, one year old or older. Shorn wool production dropped 2% to 22.7 million pounds, and the average price paid for wool sold in 2023 was $1.56 per pound for total value of $35.3 million. Oklahoma saw the largest percentage increase in sheep and lamb population with a 117% increase as its population rose from 60,000 to 70,000. Texas saw its total population drop from 680,000 to 655,000, but remains the largest sheep-producing state. 
California with 500,000, Colorado with 400,000, Wyoming 320,000, and Utah with 270,000 continued to round out the top five in total sheep population. However, all of the states in the top five saw a minor decline in their overall sheep numbers. As for wool production, California and Wyoming tied for the top spot among states at 2.3 million pounds, with Colorado third at 2.28 million pounds. I'm Will Jordan for Agnet West. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. We will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Coming up in a few moments, we'll have today's This Land of Ours report, but first, more of the day's agriculture news. And with today's Agnet West headlines, here's Agnet West Farm News Director Brian German. The U.S. Department of Agriculture is expecting 2024 to be a strong year for almond exporters. The USDA's Foreign Agricultural Service noted that expanded opportunities in Europe and Asia should benefit U.S. almond exporters primarily based in California. In 2022, U.S. almond exports reached $4.5 billion, making it the state's leading agricultural export, playing a crucial role in the economic well-being of communities, particularly in the Central Valley. Recent efforts have identified further fresh market opportunities in Italy, Bulgaria, and India. The removal of retaliatory tariffs by India is also expected to boost U.S. almond exports to the country to $1 billion in 2024. The Foreign Ag Service aims to advance USDA's goals by diversifying and enhancing international markets for American farmers and exporters through leveraging programs like the Foreign Market Development and Market Access Program. Farm Credit Administration Board Chairman and CEO Vincent Logan outlined key priorities for the upcoming year at the recent Farm Credit Annual Meeting. FCA priorities include ensuring the safety and soundness of the farm credit system as the paramount goal, emphasizing good governance through robust internal controls and standards of conduct. Another priority is preparing for financial innovations where FCA aims to develop the necessary skills and technologies to serve as a regulator and thought leader in the regulatory community. Additionally, the FCA underscores the importance of using principles of diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility to enhance services for all creditworthy borrowers. Lastly, maintaining the FCA as one of the best places to work in the federal government is identified as crucial, contributing to the agency's ability to recruit and retain skilled employees and instilling confidence in the farm credit system. The U.S. Department of Agriculture is seeking comment on proposed changes to conservation practices. USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service has issued a series of revised conservation practice standards in the National Handbook of Conservation Practices. NRCS is requesting comments on the conservation practices of mulching, hedgerow planting, wetland restoration, seasonal water management for wildlife, field borders, grazing management, filter strips, and structures for water control. The level of changes proposed varies for each practice, and the proposed text can be found on the NRCS website. Proposed revisions are also included in the notice in the Federal Register. Comments will need to be submitted by March 4th. NRCS state conservationists that choose to adopt the practices in their states will incorporate the practices into the electronic field office technical guide. Adopting new raisin varieties or production approaches can be a slow process. 
Farm Manager for Victor Packing, Robert Sahachian, described their approach to new practices. Usually we like to go to seminars and listen to what these researchers have come up with. It is important, though, to take a risk and try some of this stuff or else we never really learn. Because there's a big difference when you're doing it like in a lab with maybe one row of a new variety on a new system versus, say, putting it out on 20 acres and doing it more on a commercial basis. So, yeah, we have tried to do some of that stuff. We've watched other growers, and then we've taken baby steps into it. And then when we become a believer of the system or the variety, that's when we'll plant more acreage in the system. And sometimes we'll tweak stuff, whether it's pruning practices, or another cultural practice that we've learned, maybe we made a mistake on. That's the only way, you know, we're going to learn sometimes is by falling on our face a little bit. The California Small Farm Conference hosted by the Community Alliance with Family Farmers is coming up beginning on Monday, February 26th. The 36th annual California Small Farm Conference includes four days of virtual programming featuring over 50 online workshops as well as 10 in-person gatherings in local communities across the state. The East Bay, Ventura, Los Angeles, North Bay, Sacramento, Humboldt, San Diego, and Yolo Solano gatherings will take place on February 29th. The San Joaquin Valley and Central Coast gatherings will take place on March 1st. Some of the highlights and special events of this year's conference include a farmer's market professional track, on-farm field days, programs for both beginner and advanced farmers, content for livestock producers, as well as an in-person small farm tech expo. More information about the conference is available at caff.org. West Region sales agronomist for AgroLiquid, Abe Isaac, joins us today to highlight the importance of building bricks levels in crops like wine grapes, tomatoes, and citrus. The key to that is potassium, making sure that you get the right levels of potassium into those crops. You can do that, by, obviously, by, by adding potassium fertilizers, but there are a lot of factors that go into that, whether it be calcium levels and uh, phosphorus and your traces. So it's it's not just adding one thing, such as a, as a potassium, as a silver bullet to get those bricks to go up. But uh, when you do a combination of micronutrients with that as well, at the right time, like specifically wine grapes, when after you get through uh, berry softening and to when you get to harvest, about the last month, maybe six weeks as you're getting closer to that, really pounding that potassium, especially foliarly, and getting that in there is a, uh, a great way to do that. And one of the things to keep an eye on as well is what your sodium levels are in the soil. If you've got some high sodium levels, that foliar is absolutely one of the best ways to do it. And the same thing with citrus that's out there. And with tomatoes, tomatoes, it is, uh, it's, I like to get my potassium on uh, right after flower set and fruit set and start with that on tomatoes and making sure that, that you are pulling your tissue samples, looking at that again. Like I said in the past, being careful with your tissue samples. Don't put too much weight into them because a lot of times you can look at them and go, oh, I need more potassium. But looking at your plant, looking at how much you've already applied, and and realizing you know what I'm I'm okay that is being that potassium is being pulled out of that tissue and it's going into that fruit where I want it to be, and you can see that those bricks build uh, by testing that that sugar those these crops for that brick level, and uh, you can you can get some pretty good numbers out of it that way. The thing about citrus is, and and especially as we come into the fall season, and and that's when we're going to harvest these the citrus. And we're in the process of doing that right now. We'll be harvesting citrus until well into May and in some parts of it into June. But as we come into the fall and we start getting into some freezing temperatures, 
what can really damage the citrus is if you've got low sugar levels and, uh, and, and things like that in that plant and in that fruit. If you push that potassium and get that breakfast levels up, sugar freezes at a much uh, lower temperature than water will in, a, in an orange, in, in a citrus. And uh, you can do a little bit to help alleviate the freeze damage that you can get. Uh, both on the foliage and certainly on the plant. And I've seen that happen many, many times. But that will also set you up the next year at bloom time for developing a better set. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. We go now to Chuck Zimmerman. At CattleCon 2024, I'm visiting with Jessica Newberry. And uh, Jessica, I know that you work for Verbeck and I want you to tell us a little bit about what you do for the company and, and a little bit about the company itself. Absolutely. So I'm the Senior Technical Services Veterinarian for Verbach Livestock. And Verbach is actually the number five ruminant company in the world. But we only entered the U.S. two years ago with our first product, which is a generic telathomycin called Tulacin 100. And then in August of 22, we came with Tenetrel, which is an enrofloxacin injectable solution. You're completely new to, to some of us. And how long did you say you've been, been We've here? We've um, been present in the U.S. with livestock products for two years. Two years. So okay. we launched, and then the first thing that we did was automatically start doing field work. Being from Missouri in the Show Me State, I wanted um, people to show me about how products work, not right. just in the lab. So that's something we've really taken to heart and have spent a lot of um, effort doing. So... Um, you know, the, the the kind of product you have now, and I know you've got something in the pipeline, uh-huh. too. Uh, wh- what is what is the product again, and what, what's, what does it do? Yeah. What, what does it do for producers? Absolutely. So the first one is Tulacin 100. It's a telathomycin injectable solution. So it's a generic of Draxin. Um, and it's labeled for treatment of bovine respiratory disease, control of bovine respiratory disease, and then treatment of pink eye and foot rot. So it does a lot of things. Um, it's extremely effective against those bacteria that are on the label and um, really easily injected. One of the things that Verbeck did to set ourselves apart is we put this protective shell around every 250 ml and 500 ml bottle of Tulacin 100. I've broken bottles in practice. It always makes me cringe. So with this protective shell, you can drop it consecutively from a height of four feet onto concrete. 93% of the time it doesn't break. It's even more break resistant than plastic bottles. So, um, you know, when I hang it on my chute, I know it's pretty safe. For people that want to know more information about you, uh, tell us a little about your team and, and who they would talk to and how did they get in touch with them. Absolutely. So um, just starting out, we have four sales reps really in the central um, state. So we have um, Tyler Hartwell is in Nebraska. He does South Dakota, Nebraska, Iowa. We have Jeff Chapman for Missouri, the western, or excuse me, eastern part of Kansas and Oklahoma. We have Macy McGraw that covers Texas and New Mexico. And then finally, uh, we have Teresa Bibbs, who's Colorado, Wyoming. So just starting out, uh, myself, and then we have a vice president of Livestock Health. But looking to grow as we bring more products to the industry. Well, before we close, anything else you'd like uh, producers to know about Verbeck that we haven't touched on? Yeah. So I think the biggest thing is we're committed to growth. We... um, have a great portfolio globally and we're working to bring many of those products over the next five to ten years and we're really putting um, 
that together by bringing a whole new product line in mid-year. So hopefully producers will hear more about it in June or July. All right. Well, thank you very much, Jessica, for visiting with me here. We are at Calicon 2024, and I'm Chuck Zimmerman reporting. The USDA's latest farm income forecast shows lower farm income compared to last year. Chad Smith has more on the numbers. The Economic Research Service forecasts that farm income will decrease by 25% in 2024. Danny Munch, an economist with the American Farm Bureau Federation, discusses what the report says about the farm economy. It measures net farm income, a broad measure of farm profitability, and the latest report anticipates a decrease from 2023 numbers of $155 billion to $116 billion in 2024. That's a $40 billion or 25% drop year over year, and the largest recorded year-to-year dollar decrease in net farm income on record. He says there are two main drivers behind the income drop. A $21 billion expected decline in cash receipts, so what farmers are receiving price-wise for their crops and livestock, and a $17 billion increase in production expenses, reaching a record level of $455 billion spent on production expenses expected for 2024. This report emphasizes the need for the new Farm Bill to be finished this year. Farmers utilize many programs within the Farm Bill, including ARC, PLC, dairy margin coverage, as well as the risk management options to help buffer against cost increases or volatile markets and increases in production expenses. So when we see a decrease or an expected decrease in farm income of this magnitude, it's really important that these safety nets are available to farmers to make sure that we have secure domestic food supply. Learn more at fb.org. Chad Smith, Washington. How farmers prepare ahead for that inevitable low-income year. That's coming up on This Land of Ours. As most folks in agriculture know, producers are used to needing to find ways to smooth income from year to year. And USDA Chief Economist Seth Meyer says hopefully during the last couple of good income years, producers have done some smoothing, set aside some money to get through what could be a low income year this year. But he says producers will also need to keep close tabs on costs and refocus on What inputs am I putting on my crop? And so I think we'll see some producers try to make some adjustments in that way. And of course, watching your marketing will be another important element this year. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Welcome back to the AgNet NewsHour. For today's featured interview, I'm talking with Curtis Garner, the COO of Verdant Robotics. First off, I mean, with the name of the company, Verdant Robotics, kind of self-explanatory, but tell me a little bit about the company itself. Yeah, it's Verdant Robotics, right? So Verdant means like a lush green color. <clears throat> We're green uh, to the core. Everybody in the company is a mountain biker, rock climber, um, but also happens to be a technologist, right? So they've uh, scratched their intellectual itch by challenging themselves to code on the computer and do very difficult things. And then with Verdant Robotics, they get to scratch the other side of the brain, the, the creativity side, the, the one that's an outdoorsman, somebody that cares for the environment. How did the idea come together? Yeah, the idea came together by my co-founder and I going around and talking to farmers for roughly six months trying to find a right fit for the technology. So we have a bunch of technologists that could build some cool things, but what should they really build? What do the farmers actually need? And through conversation and collaboration, we landed on computer vision-based spraying, so the machine detects objects of interest, and then we place molecules directly on the site of interest. So this looks like 
spraying a dollop of organic herbicide just on a weed and never touching a carrot. And the technology to do that is kind of amazing, to be able to be that precise with the inputs. Uh, what can this mean for farmers? So what this means for farmers is ROI in less than a year, right? So we're going to provide them material savings. So in most crops, we're going to spray 96% less material. But they're also going to save on labor savings, right? So we can come in and do the job of hand weeding, but with a machine. The machine never gets tired, and it can run day and night. I really like the idea of a machine hand weeding, because um, that is not a fun thing to do. <laughs> no, no, no five-year-old grew up and said, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to crawl on my hands and knees and, and pick weeds for you know, eight to 12 hours a day. Yeah, yeah. So California seems like the perfect place for this, um, first off, because of the tech, just the technology involved, but then also with the types of crops that we grow in California needing that type of precision too, um, you know, because obviously specialty crops just have different requirements than, uh, you know, if you're growing um, a field full of soybeans. So, um, does this work with delicate crops? You mentioned carrots earlier, but what if we're growing delicate, uh, you know, fruits or something? Will that, does this type of technology work there yet, or are you working toward it? Yeah, we actually got our start in apples, cherries, and pears, so we did things like crop load management, so we would artificially pollinate the flowers that we'd like to impregnate, and then we'd spray uh, fertilizer or lime sulfur and oil on the flowers we'd like to terminate, and so we could choose where we wanted the, the blossoms to be on the flower and the fruit to grow. Uh, but conversely, the right amount of fruit on the tree so it wasn't overstressed. The machine's absolutely applicable to all specialty row crops, and we're even looking at broadacre row crops, but all the tenderleaf lettuce, spinach, carrots, garlic, onions, every single leafy green that's out there, our machine can handle. So, you know, for people who are hearing this, and, and I mean, it's exciting to even hear about um, just where the technology is going and where you've brought it so far, but how can they get more information? They can reach out to me directly. Um, they can go on our website. Um, there's forms that they can fill out to request a demo. If they email sales at verdantrobotics.com, I'll get it. So will my founder. And so we're very approachable. I likely know um, somebody that knows them. So if they just reach out to their network, they can likely get to me pretty quickly and easily. So are you going to be out at the World Ag Expo? We'll be at the World Ag Expo. We're going to be at booth U35. And we'll be there all day, every day. Are you going to have anything to demonstrate out there, or will you be out there talking with people? We're going to have our 20-foot machine there, so they're going to get to see the latest and greatest in our equipment. That's exciting. Are you excited to be out there? I'm so excited to be out there. I come from agriculture, so, yeah, I, I go almost every year. So, yeah, the World Ag Expo is kind of like my old high school reunion. Yeah. I see lots of old friends. Yeah, that's how it is for a lot of us, isn't it? <laughs> the World Ag Expo runs Tuesday through Thursday at the International Agri Center in Tulare. You are listening to the Agnet News Hour, and now for more news. It wasn't just the U.S., but the entire North American cattle industry came together during the recent NCBA conference in Orlando, Florida. Dennis Guy reports. Cattle industry representatives from Canada and Mexico attended the U.S. National Cattlemen's Annual Conference recently in Orlando, Florida. Meetings involved the three partner countries in the USMCA Trade Pact to discuss a slate of issues. Nathan Finney, president of the Canadian Cattle Association and a rancher in Sackville, New Brunswick, says the proposed product of USA labeling was a primary issue discussed. 
The labeling program is being touted as voluntary for the U.S. industry, but both Canada and Mexico see that U.S. program proposal as a threat which could severely disrupt the existing and very integrated North American beef industry. Finney says that Canada and Mexico both view this voluntary U.S. industry program proposal as being too similar to the previous mandatory country of origin labeling issue. The voluntary product of the U.S. is the big one. Mexico has similar concerns. We're at a point where there's been droughts in the U.S. and in Canada, and we all know that our critical mass is down. One of the points that we will be watching if this does cross the finish line is any sort of segregation or injury. That gets us back to the WTO days where we were really concerned about origin of labeling. And even though it's a voluntary version of cool, the threats are real. Canadian Cattle Association Executive Vice President Dennis Laycraft is at a loss to understand how beef packing plants could administer such a restrictive program when it comes to overseas markets. Laycraft says that with the U.S. as the main processing hub, when it comes to slaughter cattle procurement, the currently proposed product of USA program would be very hard to manage. Right now they've got the most restrictive definition with the born, raised, slaughtered and processed to qualify. Even their own procurement programs have to follow this new definition. In an integrated North American market, how do packers manage something like that? That has all kinds of implications when we start exporting products because you have to put product of Canada or product of USA on your product when you export it. Drought events have forced the movement of more live cattle across borders to find viable grazing pasture and available feedstocks. Dennis Laycraft says that cattlemen on both sides of the border will continue to benefit from North America's integrated beef industry. There's been such beneficial movement. When we're dealing with droughts, cattle have moved. Probably going to experience that in Western Canada where we're going to have to import our feeder cattle from the United States. That's actually going to benefit cow-calf producers in the U.S. because you're going to have a very active bidder on their market. Eastern Canada importing more and more feeder cattle from areas like Virginia. So there's more benefits from an integrated market than there are ever losses in it. Reporting from Canada, I'm Dennis Guy. According to the International Fresh Produce Association, specialty crops in the U.S. bring in about 44% of the farm income, while only getting about 3.5% of funding. USDA Undersecretary Jenny Lester Moffat says the vast variety of specialty crops and their vast variety of needs makes research even more important. And I think that's really important because specialty crops have unique challenges. Specialty crops are Um, certainly have different pest challenges uh, for their crop and then, of course, across the country, too. So pest challenges that can be just devastating to the crop. Of course, weather-related and climate-related challenges, whether it's too much heat, too early frost, um, all of those different things. Hailstorms are different challenges that producers have. She says research was a hot topic during her recent trip to Michigan, where she talked with growers and others in specialty crop industries. That is such an important part. So you talked about, you know, different challenges. So there are challenges, of course, related to, and what I heard from producers earlier this week in Michigan, things like food safety challenges, making sure that we can continue to grow and produce food, also addressing food safety issues. Um, I heard things like new cultivar development, new varieties um, to be developed that 
uh, are more resilient to different weather-related challenges that we'll have um, that we have now and will continue to have into the future. Speaking at the Cultiva Masterclass titled "Mastering Fruit Cuticle Quality and Why It Matters," researcher Dr. Joss Rose of Cornell University went over decades of intricate research into the fruit cuticle and its importance to fruit quality and longevity. Plants live in essentially all habitats on Earth and they can thrive in deserts and up mountains and in very moist areas where there's lots of disease and the skin has evolved of plants, the cuticle, to allow them to do that. In an interview after his presentation, Rose told me having funding for research like his is vital. It's critical. I think it's it's absolute lifeline. So we rely on federal dollars, but also state funding as well for basic research, but for translational research. And and in my my job, you know, we are very excited about taking the discoveries in the lab and translating it through our extension programs out into the fields and for growers and breeders. And at all levels, I think, getting those state dollars and those federal dollars are critical. That's how we're going to be able to provide food security for a population that's increasing on this planet. And in the context of climate change and loss of agriculture, culturally viable land. Federal specialty crop programs, including research, are funded through Title X of the Farm Bill. Together with trade, forestry, rural development, and other small titles, they represent about 1% of the total funding. The largest part of the funding in the Farm Bill, about 75 to 80%, is for the nutrition programs, such as SNAP and WIC. The panels and participants for the 100th USDA Agricultural Outlook Forum Thursday Plenary are now known, with a variety of subjects covered. Here's Rod Bain. Now announced, the plenary speakers for this year's USDA Agricultural Outlook Forum. The secretary's speech will focus on what's come to be known as the whiteboard speech, where he's talking about the future of agriculture and some of the programs and policies that he's promoting to help farms prosper and looking ahead to the future and what's needed to help the agriculture industry and the agriculture sector. World Agricultural Outlook Board Chair Mark Jekodowski says following Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack's keynote address. We will have a panel discussion with some state commissioners of agriculture, learning some of the challenges their producers are facing and some of the actions that those state commissioners are taking on the ground. With Deputy Secretary Social Torres Small moderating. The following panel discussion focuses on new horizons in agriculture, how science and technology is helping the farm sector to prosper. Then a conversation with Rockefeller Foundation President Raj Shah and USDA Chief Scientist Shavonda Jacobs-Young about global challenges to agriculture and possible solutions. Forum registration and details are available online at www.usda.gov OCE ag outlook forum. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. I will be reporting from that USDA Agricultural Outlook Forum later this week. That's today's top agriculture news. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Thank you for sharing your morning with us. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Brian German and Sabrina Halvertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.